So what I'll do is I'll, I'll read out the passage for us and then we'll pray and we'll look at this passage together. So today's passage is Romans 4 and it's verses 9b to the end of the passage, which is verse 25. I don't know if we got up on the overhead, but I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so it might be slightly different. Yeah, it will be slightly different to what's up there. But reading from verse 9b. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offsprings that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Sorry, for if it is to be the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives light to dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, and fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. For the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. So let's just pray as we approach this passage together. Lord, just pray, we look at that passage, we see all these words, and we we look at it and say, well, actually, what's Paul telling us? And what is the message for us? Pray our hearts to be open to receive what you have to say to us this this morning. Pray you bless our time together. Amen. Now, this is one of those passages, you know, you have to do a bit of research. You know, I was up this morning, sat at the kitchen table. I have a habit now, it's a terrible habit, but I write the sermon on the morning itself. 
which often means I get up about six and I'm normally done by about half eight and I have a quick hour to rush around to get to wherever it might have to be that, that morning. It didn't quite work last week because I was done, but last week I had two to do. So I had to be at the church for quarter past nine. So you can imagine what time I got up to make that one work. But I do have that habit of doing it, and this is one of the mornings that had me. iPad in front of me, my special Bible software, looking at what on earth is this passage about? Who was it written for? What's the bit of context behind this passage? And Romans was written around about 57 AD. It was written by Paul to a strong, predominantly Jewish church. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to quite a Jewish audience. And it's interesting because two of the main people of the church were actually Priscilla and Aquila, who you hear about in Acts. Because a previous emperor before the current one had actually forced a lot of Jews out of Rome. And so that's why they were, they came across Priscilla and Aquila in Acts. Because actually then later on they were able to return to Rome. So they're back in Rome. They're one of the leaders of this church, trying to get this church to grow, and Paul fancies going down to visit them. And of course, Paul decides he's going to write to them. You know, you think you let people know if you're going to turn up, so he writes to them saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to visit you, and he explains a purpose, tell them about Jesus, to strengthen them. And then of course, as you do, he writes a full 14-chapter book about what he preaches on. You know, it's not quite your typical letter, but he decides he's going to write a full thing about what he teaches about Jesus. And part of it is to address critics who have said he says something different. But that's the thing that he does in Romans. He writes out, basically, what is his message to the believers, to different people around the world. And because of that, this has been a very, very powerful book for the Roman church, but also for many churches since and for many people. You know, what I read this morning, it said in the commentaries that Romans brought about the conversion of St. Augustine. They transformed the life of Martin Luther when he realized the extent of the grace of God. And of course, it's also the same book that warmed Wesley's heart and caused him to pursue bringing revival across our nation. It inspired many people in our past, it inspires many people today, and it's a book I'd love to go back to. You know, and actually Romans 4 isn't my favourite passage, and my favourite one's Romans 5. But increasingly the past year I felt more and more drawn to Romans 4, and I just felt God said at some point you're going to talk about that passage. And I feel that that might be this morning. So I'm going to try my best. Steve Alcott did make me a little bit nervous, telling me about how the house group has got in detail in Romans, so I'm sure there'll be some scoring cards somewhere in the congregation. But first of all, we've got this question of circumcision. The process by which men are brought closer to God. Because for any man, they pray either they'll never have to have that kind of operation, or if they have, they'll never have to go through it again. You know, it's certainly something that nobody envisions. You know, if you're told you've got to join the club, but you've got to be circumcised, I think it might put a few men off. But the good news is, it's not a requirement of a relationship with God. That's one of the first things that Paul says. He says, being circumcised does not make you right with God. You know, you don't just, you're not just born into being right with God. It's more involved than that. 
But he draws upon this right of circumcision because it is a mainly Jewish church. He's going to them and saying, let me tell you about people that you revere. People in the Bible that you look at and they are an example to you of how you live a life of following God. And one of them, of course, is Abraham. He was the one who God credited as being righteous to God. The one who God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. The one that God made promises and began the whole story. And for Jews, they'd say, well, we're circumcised. We're part of that promise. And actually Paul says, no. That isn't the reason why you're part of the promise. You know, because you're circumcised does not mean you're saved. Actually, there's something else involved. You've got to become right with God. And we see a lot in this passage that word righteousness. And it's quite a, a deep word, quite a big word. And I found, I've got a great little book here I'd like to pull in and out of. And it's, it gets forgotten on the shelves for months at a time. But it's a great little book called The Bible Book. And it's by a man who used to be a Sunday school teacher, so he, he's quite good at explaining things in a simple way. And he says this about righteousness. Paul used this word a lot in Romans. In the Old Testament, the word is used more in a legal state. It means that a man is in the clear or is in the right. So Israel often compares itself to other nations. But the term, the term came to have a wider meaning. It meant instead a moral code, a type of righteous behaviour. A man could be called righteous because he did what was right. And in Romans, Paul used the term to, to describe the relationship between man and God. The fundamental question is, how can we be right with God? Does it depend on us keeping the law in all its aspects? If that is so, we're all doomed. Because no one can keep the law. But instead Paul argues that what makes us right is faith. It is through faith in Jesus that we become right with God. And so Paul argues that that circumcision, that's not a requirement of our relationship with God. It says it's more deep than that. It's about faith. And that would mean a real relief to people reading this book. Because in that church, although it's mainly Jews, there'd be quite a few Gentiles, you know, non-Jewish people. First of all, they would have felt relief, okay, thank goodness we've not got to be circumcised. But also, for them it would have spoken a stronger message that actually the message of Jesus is available to all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all the people throughout the world. They can receive and hear and become a part of the promise of God. You don't need to have been born a Jew or follow certain rules and regulations to be a part of God's promise. The first condition that I see at this point, the first condition of being a part of that promise is to have been created by God. You know, each of us are God's children because each of us are created by our God. So straight away, the fact you're alive on this earth means you are open to the promise that God has for you. And that's a great encouragement for these people reading this, hearing this the first time in their church, is that God is there for all people. It's a message that all people can receive. 
And that basis of that, of that relationship is faith and it's not the law. You know, the law also does not make you right with God. As Paul points out, the law was written 430 years after Abraham made that promise of God who was credited as being righteous. So the first question anybody should have is, well, what on earth happened to the people from Abraham to the law? Does God change the terms? Or do these people just automatically not qualify because they've not had the opportunity to live within God's law? It raises a big question because we put that against the fact that the scripture says that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Suddenly you say, well actually, what is the base of the law? What is the law actually doing? And what we can say from this, and Paul says it, is that the law itself is not the way we're made right with God. The law is there as a guide. The law is there to help us to understand what it means to live in relationship with God. You know, the law talks about things we shouldn't do. You know, let's not steal, let's not murder, you know, let's not hurt other people. That seems a fairly good start. It then presents laws about how we could be healthy. You know, in a community where disease could spread so easily, isolating people, checking for these illnesses, you know, locking up properties and checking that mold and damp has gone, quite practical things if you are in a community surrounded by tens of hundreds of thousands of you in a world which you don't have plumbing. You know, it's a fairly good idea to follow those rules. And then the law also covers ways in which we can worship God. You know, one thing I was like in Leviticus, where it starts off, you know, you should sacrifice this. And then it says, well, if you can't afford that, you can sacrifice that. And if you can't afford that, and it goes down until the point it says, if you can't afford that, ask the priest to bless you. You know, the, the law gives us ways in which we can worship God. And they're meant to guide us in, in the ways that we are expected to live as a community of God's people. And the greatest, the greatest error of the law, I think, is the recipients. It's us. The greatest flaw in God's law is not the law itself, but actually how we reacted to it and what we did with it. What we as humanity did, because what we did was we took it so literally, so prescriptively, we made it completely and utterly impossible to follow. And that's what Paul's saying. You know, if, if we've got to follow every requirement of the law, we are doomed because of what we've made it. And, of, and obviously the first couple of, couple of books of the Bible cover the law a few times over to eventually get to Deuteronomy. They prepare for Moses is going to leave them. And we have this chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 28, in which Moses says to the people, here's the blessings if you follow the law, and here's the curses if you don't. And I looked at that this morning, and what I find so interesting is actually what it says at the start of Deuteronomy 28, when it talks about the blessings. And it says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God. And what struck me was, first of all, it says, faithfully. If you faithfully obey the Lord your God, the voice of the Lord your God, it says faithfully. It's not, it doesn't mention the law. It doesn't mention any law whatsoever. 
It says, if you faithfully follow God, and that's the first commandment to follow, is if we faithfully follow our God, he will help us to fulfill the law itself. And then it says, voice. And that struck me as well, because you think for the community, they've just written down the law, they've had it read out several times, it's there on record, and then actually it says, but listen to the voice of God. Well, surely if all they've got to do is follow the law, they don't need the voice. But they do need the voice because it isn't about the law. It's about listening to God and having a faithful relationship with him. It's not about following any particular laws. And like I said, the greatest error of the law is us and what we did to it. You know, even in Genesis we did this. In Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree. But if you look at the account of Adam and Eve and the serpent, Eve says, oh, we're not allowed to eat or touch the tree. Even, we're not even out of the first passages, we've not even got children yet, and already we've managed to make our job a lot more difficult than it should be. That is, seems to be our nature. You know, humanity wants to make our job harder in every way, and we want to somehow achieve it on our own. And the Bible tells us over and over again, that is impossible. That only with God, only in a relationship of faith, with the grace and the mercy of God in our lives, can we even come close to what God would want us to be. We need God in our lives. And straight away, we, we find ourselves, if we try to go too far, we condemn ourselves. We set rules we can't achieve. We set barriers and we, we already assign our own fate. But it's all about faith. And in the commentary this morning, it, it's talking about this, and talking about Abraham's faith. And I've took a screenshot because I didn't want to drop the iPad. But it says here, Abraham's justification and attendant blessings were based on his faith in God. They were not earned by merit or effort on his part, but conferred on him by God's grace. And the principle on which God thus dealt with Abraham extends to his descendants. Not to his natural descendants as such, for they are being subject to the obligations of the law, but to his spiritual descendants, those who follow the precedent of Abraham's faith. This, says Paul, is what God meant when he gave him the name Abraham and said, I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. These comprise all who believe in God, Jews and Gentiles alike. Abraham is a father of all believers. You know, we are all God's children. We are all created by God. And if we believe in God, we also become the children of Abraham, the children of promise. Because we enter that promise of God, that we can become right with God when we accept the promise of what God has done for us. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, and so it can be for ourselves. And faith is the requirement. But what are we to believe? What are we to actually believe that results 
in that faith that makes us right with God. And I took the bookmark out of my Bible. But I want to read a little bit of what Romans says. Just from that Romans 4 again, just read a little bit of what it says at the end about what we are to believe in. It says here about Abraham and what he believed and what we should believe that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What we are to believe is that actually Jesus died on the cross for our mistakes, for our sins. We are to believe that we don't achieve being made right with God because of circumcision, we don't achieve it before in the law. We achieve it by accepting Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. By accepting the fact that we need a saviour. That Jesus died for all of our mistakes, past, present and future. That actually we need a saviour. And we can't achieve it ourselves. You know, when I was chatting to Steve earlier on about your Bible study... It said to me, no, the interesting thing they see is, and Romans just tells you over and over, you're a Jew, you're saved, no. You're a Pharisee, you're saved, no. Sadducee, you're saved, no. You know, as you go for the passages, different groups of think, oh, I'm saved, I'm fine. Paul says to them, actually, you're not. Because the only people who are made right with God are those who accept what Jesus has done. If anybody rejects that, they're outside of that promise of hope. And I was chatting to uh, somebody recently, actually told me that in the synagogues, Jews skip the passage of Isaiah 53. And I checked this this morning, my research, it's true. But Isaiah 53 is the, the passage about the suffering servants, and they actually skip it entirely because it raised too many questions. They skip it now and just move straight on. But unfortunately for them, they've increasingly separated themselves from the rest of the world. They've increasingly put more and more prescriptive practices on themselves of how they follow the law to the point that they have to live in certain areas and that's it because they can't practice their faith outside of it because of the impact the law has on their lives. And last weekend, Anya and I were walking around near Holcomb Tower and we're coming around to the end and we saw this Jewish couple and they came up to us and said, oh, we can't find where we're going. Can you lead us this certain way? So we led them a bit and we're chatting about Ransbottom. And the, the woman said, oh, I love Ransbottom. We come out whenever we can. And we said, well, we live here. And they were shocked, you know, thinking, wow. You know, she said to me, I wish we could live here. But the reality is, that couple live in Manchester because if they lived outside of Manchester, they wouldn't be able to get kosher food. If they lived outside of Manchester, they wouldn't be able to work in Jewish workplaces. If they lived outside of Manchester, there's certain things they could not do to help them fulfill the law. And for them, what's the saddest thing is they have no hope but only obligation. 
Because unfortunately, the natural descendants of Abraham have by and large rejected his faith. By and large, they've rejected his example and instead, they're losing out on that promise of God. A lot of the natural descendants have chosen to make it more prescriptive, make it more law-based, and now they're totally closed off to the point they can't even hear some of their own scriptures because it's too challenging. Without the hope, all we have is obligation. You know, I remember last summer, Anya's brother came over and he said to us, um, oh, they all say they've got, you know, a son of God or a saviour. And I said, well, actually they don't. I said, Hinduism doesn't say that. Buddhism doesn't say that. Islam doesn't say that. Judaism doesn't say that. And I said, actually, Christianity is the only religion that says that God died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. You know, any other viewpoint in life, all you are left with is obligation to somehow achieve salvation. Your obligation to somehow be right with God and get up to heaven and everything else. Christianity is the only one that actually says there is a hope. There is a saviour. And we have a hope. And like Paul, we need to share that hope. You know, at the moment we've got a, a Bible student staying with us in our house. You discover how small two bed is when you have another person. But it's a lovely, lovely girl. She's from America and she goes to Cap and Ray Bible College up in the Lake District. And herself and ten others have come down because we're having a ten-day mission in Roundsbottom. Fourteen of our churches have joined together, which is pretty good. I think there's only about three that haven't. We've got fourteen together doing something called Do You Know Him? Now, you can look online, Do You Know Him? I mean, if you go into Roundsbottom, you can't possibly drive around without seeing a poster somewhere because every single church has at least got a massive banner, you know, that is right in front telling you, Do You Know Him? And this comes from a, a thing that happened in Skipton where they did this as a course around Easter. They devised themselves all about, do you know who Jesus is? And what they're doing is over weekends, they're giving out gifts like bags of blessing, the corn, there's little things in there. They're doing things like planting trees out in the, out in the streets and people can help them, like little pots they can take home and everything else. Uh, and Rami's getting, getting useless at this point. We've had a curate for about a year who's been doing heal on the streets. So every Sunday, you've got a good, oh, sorry, every Saturday, you've got a good chance of being captured and prayed for in Roundsbottom. <laughs> but they're getting used to us doing things like this around Bottom, and it's going on for, I think it's about eight, eight weeks in total. Because we've got this lot helping us for the first ten days, and we're carrying on beyond that. But, in this situation, we've got these students helping us to share our faith across Roundsbottom. You know, and that's one of, our, one of our things we want to do with our faith. We want to share it. We want to give people hope. And could there be scope that we do this in, in Rosendale? Could there one day be a Do You Know in Rosendale website? You know, could this be something that goes forward? But even if not, we need to also be prepared and ready to answer for the hope we have in Jesus. And when people say to you, what do you believe? You can tell them. You know, later on we've got somebody popping around to see us and I'm just hoping they might ask me what that banner is and I can tell them, <laughs> you know. But we should be ready to answer for the hope we have in Jesus. And a third application we could do is to support 
our churches and mission agencies, you know, physically, financially, and spiritually. And obviously for yourselves, you've got the vision day, and, you know, for the deacon's point of view, they want as many of you there because they want you to support it physically, they want to support it, you know, spiritually, and if you get the right vision, get the minister that, you know, people are receptive to and can hear the gospel, they hope you stick around and support it financially as well. You know, that is something we can do. And Anya's going to tell a little bit about something she's doing this summer. Because we're on recording, I'm going to say she's going somewhere in Asia. I can't tell you where because we're on, we're on recording. But uh, if you do ask her afterwards, she can give you a bit more detail. So just a little minute to just tell you something she's doing practically this year to spiritually support uh, a mission agency. I am going to Central Asia for two weeks in July to visit missionaries who Rob and I support financially and also to travel to provinces in this country where there are cities with up to 10,000 people with no missionaries, um, no Christians and, and, and no, no outreach. So I'm traveling with an outreach team to share the gospel there and my role is particularly around prayer and pastoral support. So Rob and I are meeting the financial cost of this ourselves, but if you could please pray for three things, I've been told to be brief, um, pray for the local Christians that we would be a blessing to them, pray for open hearts to hear the gospel message and for fruit, and pray for protection um, for myself and the other people on the outreach. My father-in-law said to me very poetically, don't die and that is the aim I'll hand you back to Rob <laughs> she's always great isn't she full of energy full of things but um, but I just want to share that because the thing is a part of this passage is as I've already said you don't get to be made right with God through the law through circumcision it's through faith alone and if people don't have that faith they have no hope and if they are on a different system at all if they of uh, you know followers of something else then they have only got obligations that they can't fulfill and the thing that i think you should take away from this sermon the practical things is that we should seek to grow in our faith you know you've got your bible groups you've got your courses you do you've got your ministry and different people like myself whatever there's ways you can grow your faith but then also when asked about your faith being open to share it and not, be, not to be frightened, you know, because with our thing we're doing this, with this do you know him, we're passing them a bag of blessing. And if they say, what on earth this is? We tell them. And they say, why on earth are you doing this? We tell them. And it, then it goes on from there, obviously. You know, we've given them an opportunity to ask us. And rather than shine and say, oh, we're just being nice. And we say, well, actually, we're, we're Christians. We want to do this, you know, to bless you. And then say, why on earth do you want to bless me? Because you never hear that word in, in word, do you? And next we know a conversation occurs. And of course the third thing is support our churches and support our mission agencies. You know, praying for them, helping out with them, volunteering, and obviously attending your vision days, that kind of thing. And then obviously when they get on board of things and you're on board of them, it's also, if you can, financially support them. Because through that, we're better share our faith across the world. Because this passage Romans tells all about is that that faith is for everybody. Not for any particular group, any particular people. It's for everybody in the world. 
And that's what we should say from this as a church, as believers, that we can share that message and we want that message to be heard throughout our world.